Welcome back to episode number six on the wealth of self. In today's podcast, we're joined by Dan Basta, who has had an incredibly diverse and global career and has followed a path that many would call a little bit unorthodox. Born and raised to immigrant parents in the heart of Brooklyn, New York City, Dan always had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Growing up in a blue collar household, important values such as hard work and saying yes to good opportunities when they presented themselves were the catalyst for Dan to take the leap and take on these adventures that we're going to hear about today. From working on projects such as the development of the F-14 Tomcat to spending 37 years of his career with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Dan has been on the cutting edge of projects that have revolutionized the way that we look at the world, and we don't even really know it. I also need to mention that He's a scuba diver, and he's been teaching people the intricacies of underwater navigation for 35 years, including some harrowing tales on shipwrecks. And he just published his fourth book. So to say this gentleman has had a number of accomplishments may just be a little bit of an understatement. Needless to say, I'm excited for us to get involved with this conversation and for everyone listening and watching to learn a little bit more about Dan Boston. Your story is diverse, and there are a lot of elements, and there may be things that you don't hit on fully, but okay, that's okay. So, uh, it's uh, a New York story. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a son of a Italian immigrant family in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. and my father works for Con Edison. He's a mechanic. Mm-hmm. My mother works in the school cafeteria, and. Life is simple. It's just at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. So I am a product of that. And all of my friends, when we, you know, it's, we're growing up in the 40s and 50s. And the world is different and we think differently. And everybody also was in the Depression. So we're being, you know, this is imprinted upon us, you know. So that, I think, is where whatever I became, began. Mm-hmm. And it began with my father telling me very clearly, oh, you got to go to school. Right. There was no question, right? In his mind. Now, did he, he had maybe got to the 10th grade, you know, in his life. Mm-hmm. Smart man, but it was the depression. Right. I remember one time, uh, I must have been in high school, he, I went down t- in the city, New York City. Mm-hmm. I think he was in Astoria at the time, big power plant. A messy, dirty place with this coal-fired plant. Dirty environment. Dirty environment. And he says, yeah. okay, hey, I don't want you ever working in a place like this. Yeah. So even if you become an engineer, I don't want you ever working in a place like this. 
So I didn't want to let them down, I guess. You know, so I started in a very technical d- dimension. I was uh, in a technical high school mm-hmm. for architecture. And that was also within the New York area. In New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I thought I was going to be an architect. Uh, so that's, that's what I wanted to do. I thought I liked that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a New York State Regents Diploma in architecture. A relic of the 30s, you know. Did you, when you reflect on that, do you find that that informed your next moves very clearly? Or do you feel like you reflect on that and say, that was actually helpful in some way, shape, or form? It was helpful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You just didn't get one of those diplomas. You had to work for it. Yeah. You had to pass every regent's exam on every subject. Mm-hmm. And then this big seven-hour architectural comprehensive. And you're a high school kid. Yeah. So you, you sort of mature quickly. So that when I went to college, it was no big deal. I mean, honestly, I had been through a lot of the coursework and, and, and the mental discipline uh, about it. But uh, th- there was a big competition at Pratt Institute. You know Pratt Institute in New York City? Yes, I'm familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Terrific place. And uh, it was for the New York World's Fair. They're more on, I would say, the arts side of things. Do you feel like that's an accurate assessment? The one person I know uh, yeah. who was with uh, Pratt was very much yep. involved in the, the world of arts. Well, everything with them is art. Mm-hmm. So architecture is art. Mm-hmm. Design is art. Mm-hmm. You would not, you couldn't, you could not Just go there a little to, more math. to get a, a technical degree, <laughs> yeah. but you get a design degree. Right. But Pratt Institute hosted the competition for the New York World's Fair. Wow. And you could go and compete. Mm-hmm. So me and a couple of my buddies went and compete, competed. I guess we were in our third year of architecture mm-hmm. in high school. Yeah. And it was a tremendous experience, but began to look around and go, wow, we really don't know a lot about this. <laughs> and that was a totally open invitation. Totally Were there open. any pre-qualifiers whatsoever? You I, just... don't, I, don't th- I don't think so. I don't remember that. Yeah. But I, I, I remember walking away from there and go, God, what ordinary, pedantic <laughs> thoughts we had. Right. You know, it was for the New, it was for the, uh, the New York State or for the, um, the U.S. Pavilion. So it was a pavilion design. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I got a lot more to do before I could even think like these mm-hmm. people think. It's Pratt. They think art. They have all these shapes and forms. And, right. and we're like still drawing straight lines, you know, on drafting boards. Please grab my ruler. <laughs> yeah. Can I have that scale, please? Paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was a, that was a, that was a wake-up call. But, you know, again, 65 is when I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. The war in Vietnam was just starting. And, uh, you know, we were different. I was the only one of my entire crew to go to college. Mm-hmm. About 12 guys. Nobody did that. Yeah. Because, you know, that was not who we came from. Every one of our parents were blue collar. Mm-hmm. Almost every male had been in World War II. Mm-hmm. Almost every single one, I knew all their battle records, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when 1965 comes, my, my buddies, they're volunteering. Let's go. They're volunteering because it's the same experience that their fathers had had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for World War II. Do you feel like their parents, because based on what you've said, it sounded as though your dad was very much a supporter of you furthering your education. Oh, yeah. He would not let me enlist. 
And do you feel like their parents were in that same boat or is it something for them maybe they didn't have that same I, I, motivation? I, I, I don't think they had got to the point where they could qualify for a lot when they graduated high school. Most of these were, you grew up very fast. Mm-hmm. You were 15 or 16, you were like a mature adult. Right. And doing adult things and trouble and all these things. A little so, different than today. It, yeah, very different. I'm sure there are parts of the country that are like that. Sure. But this was my time in my part of the country, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father would not let me do that. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he said, no, you're not doing that. Because he had been in the Army for five years. His, his, his thing was, I don't care whatever you do when you get out of college, but you got to go to college. Now, he hardly knew what that was, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but he, had a, he, he did know what it was, but he didn't know what, it, what subjects meant and all, and, all, and all these things. But he was yeah. pretty, pretty clear about that. And I didn't want to let him down. Yeah. But I also wanted to go. So what I did was, at architecture's five years. Five-year program. Five. So I'm not, I, we don't have a lot of money. Uh, I don't know what they would do if they had to pay for college. And, uh, and you qualified for some benefits that helped move that next phase appropriately? Uh, yeah, well, I was a National Merit Scholar. Mm-hmm. I was the outlier in my crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, $1,000 scholarship, but it was not that expensive. So I knew I wasn't going to stick with it because I was going to go enjoy my buddies. Mm-hmm. But I... So I thought I'd go to school for a couple of years, satisfy the old man. <laughs> but if I did that, I wanted to get something for it. Right. I just didn't want to waste it. So I went to a junior college in engineering, not in architecture. Mm-hmm. And it was a great junior college in New York. Mm-hmm. And I figured, well, I, I'll, I'll do that. I'll get the two-year degree, and then I'll enlist. Right. Because all my friends were gone. Well, so that was, I guess I graduated from there in 67. Mm. And some of my friends were coming home. And they're like, Phew. Missed it, man. No, no, no. They're like, you don't want to get involved. First-hand experience on oh, their yeah. part telling you. Yeah, they're, they're coming home. They've been overseas. They, they did their tour in Vietnam, you know. Uh, most of them made it back. So <clears throat> they were adamant how stupid this would be. So now I'm stuck in engineering. I can't go back to architecture. I could, but it'd be four years. So I decided I'll stay in engineering mm-hmm. on Long Island. Then I go to Hofstra University mm-hmm. and uh, become an engineer accidentally. I didn't really ever want to be one. I was going to be an architect, right. but the war came and my friends and everything. But when I go to Hofstra, I'm, I'm still feeling guilty. I mean, there's a residual in my mind about feeling guilty about something. So I'll just uh, become an officer. So they had ROTC. Mm -hmm. But when I got the officer, I didn't like their ROTC program. Were they still, was the ROTC structure at that time still uh, a payment for your education in exchange Uh, for service after the fact? No, not so much. Not so much. Mm -hmm. Because I had a a number of fraternity brothers that were ROTC, mm-hmm. they did not get any money for that. Oh, wow. 
But I didn't like the ROTC program mm-hmm. because, you know, I came from this blue-collar place. Yeah. And all these kids in this ROTC program are not those, like my friends. My friends would wipe them out. Right. So I don't want to be part of that. So, uh, so uh, there was a program mm-hmm. that the Marine Corps still has called the uh, PLC pr- program, Platoon Leader Corps program. It's their ROTC, but it's not at the university. Mm-hmm. But you can enlist and do the same summer things. And at the end of this program, you could be commissioned in the Marine Corps. Right. So me and this other guy go, oh, so well, that's what we're going to do. And my fraternity brother, who wound up, just an aside, joining the Army because he couldn't get a job. And he retired as a full colonel in the 101st. Wow. Quite the journey for him as well. Uh, he had, and he's a friend today. He lives in Carlisle, PA. So, so I, I, I do that. I go down to the Marine Corps and I'm going to sign to, oh, oh damn, I'd love to have you, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. But uh, this, this current sequence this summer, uh, we're full. So I have to come next summer. Oh, wow. So Another you know, year of delay. Yeah. So, so that would have been 68, mm-hmm. maybe summer 68 or 69, something like that. And so, uh, but I never signed anything. I never signed anything. That's it. Yeah. So the next year unfolds, and they get the phone call. Right. Now, in that year, were you pursuing and continuing education at yeah, that time? I'm still in college. I'm okay. still an engineering student, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing my engineering number, which fabulous education. I recommend mm-hmm. it to anybody. But now more of my friends have come home, and they're and my, my, one of my best buddies. It's like, hey, if you got to go to that war, don't go as an officer. You just, you know, bait. This whole thing sucks. You don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. So me and another guy decide, my, my friend decided, well, we're not going to do it. We'll just get drafted. What the heck? Everybody else got drafted. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Marine Corps said, but you got to come down and sign. I said, well, no, I don't. So I never signed the document. And the draft co- comes and has a hard lottery number. And me and my buddy get high numbers. We're not going to get drafted. Really? And we went out and got drunk for three days. <laughs> but the Marine Corps kept after me. So now push, push the clock to 1975. Mm-hmm. I'm coming home from overseas after being in Yugoslavia for two years. Mm-hmm. Walk into my parents' home. The first phone call I get is from the Marine Corps. First phone call. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been home in two years. How long had you been back before that, that phone rang? Two days. So pretty immediate. Immediate. And I'm, and I'm like, you guys got to lose my card. And these recruiters, they have, you know, their, their Rolodexes at the time where their mm-hmm. card indexes. You, I think I was 27, so I was still eligible. Uh, and uh, I was married. Mm-hmm. Said so you got to be kidding me. It was it was seventy five. So I guess you know this was the downsizing and all the acrimony and the difficulty with getting recruitment. Mm-hmm. So they must have been desperate. Mm-hmm. But the story ended in seventy five. Right. 
but it started in like 67. Yeah, nearly a decade of uh, attempts, I guess, on their part to get you involved after your initial interest. Yeah, well, that was a formative part, you know, that period for everyone, and mm-hmm. we all have our stories around it, and uh, there are many to tell, but I'm not going to tell you them, mm-hmm. but it's different. Mm-hmm. It was different. So I graduated from Hofstra, and I did what good Long Island boys do. I got a job in aerospace. Mm-hmm. Long Island was a hotbed of aerospace. You know, Grumman aircraft. Were you in a contracted position at that time, or how were you involved? I was hired by the uh, company, mm-hmm. and I worked on the F-14. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Is that a Tomcat? Tomcat. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. airplane. I love mm-hmm. airplanes, and it was a lot of fun and terrific but I was sometimes I'd be working 24 hours straight. Yeah, nonstop. And, you know, the war was still going on. Yeah, it was because it was 71, mm-hmm. 70, 71. And all the people in these production facilities it was fascinating. All the supervisors and the senior people had been building airplanes during World War II. So they'd been around a time or two. And they, they think. We've got to, this is, our lives depend on it. Mm-hmm. And it's driving the way production works, design works, and it's critical mm-hmm. with an intensity that was like beyond anything that you would think in a production fa- facility context. Mm-hmm. And it was good, mm-hmm. but I would work sometimes 24 hours around the clock on a test, on a piece of equipment or mm-hmm. a station of some kind. And I was saying, God, do I want to spend my time working this hard to make combat aircraft more effective? Mm-hmm. And how, how, if, how much of that push on their part would you say was motivated by the current conflict? All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. If we needed need this high superiority next generation fighter, the mm-hmm. F-14. Yeah. Which is a legend, and, it's, and it was a legend. And I, I think I might have told you this. I got to sit in the prototype mm-hmm. before it crashed. Really? Yeah, and it was like a spacecraft to us. It was carbon fiber. I do remember you saying that. Ooh. It was like this next, you know, level of it, it was. engineering. It was. But, you know, in this crash program, it was a crash program thing, which mm-hmm. means design, produce simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it crashed on its first uh, flight around the field. Everybody was devastated, of course. But it became this fantastic piece of technology admired by everyone still today. Mm-hmm. But my claim to fame is I sat in the, in the prototype mm-hmm. before it crashed. <laughs> I think it made its uh, most recent appearance in the Top Gun Maverick film where they... Uh, yep, the old, they find an old F-14. Yep, they you know, come near the Tomcat yep, and get yep, out of the air base yep. on it. It was a beast. I, I love that airplane. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, uh, maybe I, I love the woods. My father had always taught me about the woods. We had gone mm-hmm. hunting right. since I was like 10, you know, because he was from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I loved nature. And you know, At one time I thought I'd, I'd go to Syracuse University, get a degree in forestry. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're young, your mind is like, maybe this, maybe that. So now I'm at this, this point where I don't want to work on these airplanes for that purpose. You feel like you were getting burned out in that in that scenario, or you were just having a shift in your desires as I think I was a young man, having a different realization. Mm-hmm. 
I wasn't wasn't burnt out because responsibility came with it, achievement mm-hmm. came with it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't burnt out, but there was something in me that wasn't requited. I mean, like to do good, right? And environment was something I wanted to to think about. How do I get into that? Yeah, yeah. And for S- State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is a science school, mm-hmm. physics, engineering, mathematics, Nobel laureates at mm-hmm. the time, and uh, they had a, a crazy idea that they could construct a program. Mm-hmm where uh, professional engineers and physicists could be trained to apply their technical skills and expertise to the social problems of our time. Was that novel? Yeah. That concept at the time? Oh, yeah, yeah. So a couple of physicists and engineers at Stony Brook created this program. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a two-year program, which, like a 53-credit two-year program, typical. It's not like a master's today. Yeah. It was, it was a PhD without a dissertation is what mm-hmm. it was. It was fantastic. And I'd heard about it, and I, I guess I wrote them or something, and mm-hmm. uh, they said, yeah, you're in. Just so, like that. Just like that. <laughs> so the, I think there were 17 of us. We were guinea pigs uh, and uh, fully funded. So not only was everything paid for, but we had assistance ships, and we never had to work. Mm. So, so we'd get $400 a month. That's a pretty sweet deal. Sweet. Uh, to just learn. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that changed my life. That was a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. I got exposed to thinking and great intellectuals mm-hmm. that I would never, ever, ever get exposed to. Mm-hmm. That changed, changed my direction for sure. Do you think some of the novelty of that program in its early stages was you were combining hard science with social science and that wasn't an overlap that had been explored very fully at that time? Correct. Plus it was all the, uh, the mathematics of how to make things work more efficiently. Mm. Like the city of New York was a big client. Social engineering. Social engineering things. Mm-hmm. But it was using optimization methods, using economics, uh, which can be very technical subjects. I mean, Very much so. You know, it's just not writing checkbooks. It's mm-hmm. optimization models, mathematics, and mm-hmm. formulations. In fact, uh, just two days ago, I got a call from my old grad school partner who I had brought to Yugoslavia and is in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we had a great conversation. But the reason why I mention him is he brought something that I didn't bring. I was a bit older than he was. Uh, he was from upstate New York, brilliant guy, mm-hmm. but folksy. Mm-hmm. And he had a way of just lightening up situations. So we did a big project, he and I, for the city of New York mm-hmm. when we were in grad school. And it was to evaluate uh, this very controversial city investment was going to be made in the largest asphalt plant on earth. It's going to be in Flushing Meadows, which is where the World's Fair was. Mm-hmm. And where the uh, new baseball stadium is. <laughs> and uh, so we, they came to us and Jimmy and I decided we would team up. Mm-hmm. And we thought about what we would do. And we constructed a mathematical model of the simple one, the entire road network of the city. Oh, my gosh. 
And you're not accessing today's modern tools and equipment. Well, we're you think going into file cabinets. We're oh, getting traffic goodness. counts. We're getting sheets of paper. Yeah. And we're working in Manhattan. And uh, so we got very creative. Mm-hmm. And we had to find out first where was the surfacing demand and the pothole demand, but with the technology options, we had some fantastic stuff. Sounds like a Herculean effort. <laughs> but it was okay. I mean, yeah. you know. But what he brought to it was this attitude, which that's why he came to Yugoslavia, because he he had a way that just made situations light, or I was a strict one. Mm-hmm. He would just have a way. So we're going to present our results to the city. Mm-hmm. So it's the deputy mayor, the head of transportation and everything. <laughs> and, and Jimmy comes in and he's got two cane hats and two canes. And he goes, what are we doing? He goes, hey, I think we'll get your attention. A little barbershop stuff. So we go into the big conference room like, hey, what are you up to today? <laughs> <laughs> and it just broke the yeah. tension and the focus and made a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. So some years later, I asked him to come and join me overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is in, behind the eye curtain and we're doing this work. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we had nothing like you have today. So these gigantic mechanical IBM adding machines. Tremendous size. Size of a room. Uh, certainly half the size of your table. And uh, wow. we were building a data set for an air quality model we had built for this city. Mm-hmm. And, and we had to crunch a ton of numbers. So we had students who worked for us. Mm-hmm. A student in those days could be anywhere from 20 to 40. <laughs> it's Eastern Europe. It's the way it mm-hmm. was. So that we had this one room a- after the, we were confined to it because of security purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and where were you geographically at this it, time? In Slovenia. This is in Slovenia. Slovenia and Ljubljana. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had this big room on the second floor of this old chateau. And uh, we had like six or seven tables with students going on their machines. And this one guy was funny guy and his name was uh, a teenager and uh, he was like, cracking jokes and mm-hmm. goofing off you know so so we're all in this one room it's a whole other story how we had to be in that one room mm-hmm. but i said god damn it <laughs> knock that shit off something yeah. like that i said yeah, yeah, probably yeah. said it in slovene probably cursed and jimmy goes you want me to take care of it? Yeah. <laughs> I said, sure. So he goes over and he picks up one of these green monster anime machines. And he walks over to Tine and he says, put your hand on the table. <laughs> and Tine puts his hand on the table. And, oh, and he pulls it back. And now Jimmy's, this is all part of Jimmy's. Right. And he's, I can see he's got the sparkle in his eye. And he looks at him and he goes, should I drop it on his head? And uh, he couldn't stop. Yeah. He just started, everybody started laughing. Tina laughed. Everybody laughed. Mm-hmm. Point was made. Yeah. How valuable do you think that was getting to watch Jimmy's approach in those scenarios and sort of taking a, a little kernel Absolutely. away? Have you been able to implement some of that groundbreaking, uh, well, ice breaking methodology? I think the answer is yes. Yeah. I don't think I was ever as clever as Jimmy could be. He sounds like a comic as well, so. But, you know, that would, we'd, we'd be doing something and the students wouldn't want to do it, like going through garbage piles to mm-hmm. figure things out. 
And he'd go, he, he, you know, I, I could holler at them. Mm-hmm. All they'd have to say is, do I have to get an adding machine? Right. Point made. Nobody Perfect. wants to deal with that. Point made. Well, your, your story, you know, sort of exiting this program working on the F-14 What's the transition point then? We're looking at approximately 71 at that point, or uh, where were you roughly? 71 to 73 is when I'm at Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. And after that point in time, then you're starting to get involved with some of then I go overseas. your writings. Well, what did that look like, and maybe what were some of the catalysts involved with making that move possible? Well, as I said, I ran into some tremendous people, mm-hmm. and a couple of them were my mentors forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is still alive. It's going to be 80. Uh, and uh, the other one who that book is dedicated to, mm-hmm. he uh, and I kind of, he was an engineer, you know, mm-hmm. older fellow in his 40s, world famous, uh, published a lot of books on th- methods and theories you use today in environmental sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, but he had a very process thing. So we hit it off, you know. We're not students anymore. We're like colleagues, but not colleagues. Right. So one day he came up to me and he said, uh, you, uh, you interested in going to Yugoslavia? I was still in school. We was, I was still in school. Right. I had, we haven't even finished yet. And uh, he told me a little bit about it. There was this project that was uh, failing, John Hopkins project. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I think you, I think this is something you could really do. Mm-hmm. I already interviewed, at, had jobs here in DC, I had jobs at EPA, I had jobs at uh, National Bureau of Standards at the time, mm-hmm. NIST now. And uh, so I came down he, here, I came to uh, Baltimore and, and DC, mm-hmm. met with, with Hopkins, and again, another connection with giants of the, that I would never have met. Right. Who influenced me and uh, came here to D.C. and met with uh, some people at the research ta- uh, think tank that my friend was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, before the semester was out, I was on an airplane. And did they disclose a lot of the, the nature of the project to you before your departure? Did they give you a pretty accurate assessment of what you would be handling or tasked with before making that jump? 50-50. The goal was to have a successful project, mm-hmm. which comes into this story later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, Hopkins owned the project. Mm-hmm. It was the American Yugoslav Project. Mm-hmm. State Department owned the money, and Resources for the Future kind of owned me a little bit. So all three of those institutions make it possible right. for me to go get on a plane mm-hmm. and go there. Mm-hmm. And all of my expenses and monies in country were played by, paid by State Department. Mm-hmm. But because it was so uncertain, this was during difficult time in Eastern Europe, uh, I had a stateside salary that was paid by resources for the future. Mm-hmm. It was put in a bank. Yeah. So 
So it kind of felt like cool international stuff. Yeah, I'd never done any of that before. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of an historian and, and reader, and I knew about Yugoslavia, but nah, I didn't know a lot. So my first assignment was to get the lay of the land, evaluate the project, mm -hmm. what it could be, uh, what it is, what it could be, how it could work, some of the principles that my colleague Blair and I had been formulating when we were in, I was in grad school, mm -hmm. and come back and report. So I came back uh, after maybe six weeks, mm -hmm. and this was a fundamental sort of touch point. I knew everything. I was so arrogant. I knew how everything worked exactly. <laughs> and I, I tend to give a sense of confidence, you know. Sure. I'm very deliberate about mm -hmm. speaking about things. Mm -hmm. But I thought I, I really knew my shit, you know. Yeah. Two years later, <laughs> I came back. Another humbling experience. Yeah, very humbling. Yeah. I mean, we were successful, but I didn't know a lot. Mm -hmm. When I came back, and so clearly and articulately laid all this great stuff out. Mm -hmm. So that was a, was a learning point. And that was a, a two-year period of your life, 73 to 75. Yep. As far as what you picked up culturally while you were there, I think that's sort of an inevitable part of international travel, as you kind of get to see the way others live, experience a little bit of the well, cuisine. The, Did you yeah, have any of that? Yep, in the, uh, on many, many levels. Um, and, and my father's influence helped. Mm -hmm. You know, because my, my father was a blue collar guy, so he was like, it, "It's it's the guy at the working level you got to care about. You got to do right by them." Yes, sir. When I before I went no after I came back from overseas, I was here in D.C. Mm -hmm. and I had I was pretty well known for the little stuff I had done at the time, and I had gotten asked by Senator Moynihan to come to New York to a big meeting of all his backers in industry. Uh, that uh, we're discussing what to do about new environmental legislation. Mm -hmm. And since I was the expert, you know, in air, solid waste, and water quality, I could be like a referee. Because mm -hmm. what do they know? They're, you know, they're heads of, co of corporations. They don't really know a lot. Right. So, uh, but, so I did that. It was great. And, uh, but I sat next to the head of Con Edison, the CEO. Wow. My father, he's, you know, he was a mechanic in the power plant. Mm -hmm. And here's Luce, the family Luce. He's, he's just a guy. We're like equal, you know? Yeah. So uh, I was living down here, but I had gone up to New York. So I was, I think I might have stayed with my parents' home. And I, at dinner, I said, Pop. Yeah, I was not going to believe this. Oh, well, guess what his view was? Ah, was he know? You know, he always had this... Blue collar view. Yeah. Nobody above the rank of sergeant when he was in the army knew anything. Right. Nobody outside of the mechanics gang. They didn't have boots on the ground didn't like know he did. Right? Anything. But that made me also not drift into the rarefied air mm -hmm. in my entire life. Always stay close to the deck. Mm -hmm. And I did that in Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And in the in the uh, epilogue of the book, mm -hmm. I think it's maybe on the back jacket the book i said if there's anything that i became all of it is described between the pages of this book because mm -hmm. was that fundamental experience mm -hmm. about people about honor 
uh, about how you could meet people across voids, about trust, mm. and about creativity. We didn't have access to a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure shit out ourselves. Right. Be resourceful. Had to be resourceful to figure out techniques that other people hadn't used or, or thought about. Mm-hmm. And it, when some of the Hopkins folks came over to review it, I mean, this very famous modeler guy, uh, Lakshman, and he goes, you got some, some pretty clever things here. And they were simple. They weren't like, they were just right. simple ideas about how we could get tease out different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So being independent mm-hmm. without any supervisors to guide you mm-hmm. or any models to look at to say, well, we'll just do that, changed everything. At Moynihan's event, whenever you had the uh, opportunity to see that stratification, yeah. that joining point almost, did that, did that resonate with you emotionally in any other ways regarding, you know, you had this perspective from your father and now you're looking at this person who basically well, had honcho. Did yeah. it humanize him in any way for you? Or? No. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I've carried a chip on my shoulder because of my upbringing. Yeah, I, 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 and it's wrong, Yeah, but I know it's there, so I got to watch out for it. You recognize it's there. Yeah, you know, when I came... After I came back from Yugoslavia and after we did the draft of the final report, not the book, mm-hmm. I went to work at the National Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. one of the most prestigious science institutions on earth. Yeah. Truth of the matter is I had hardly heard of it before. I was so ignorant. But my fellows I worked with at Hopkins, they were the ones who said, you got to come over to the National Academy mm-hmm. and help us do this other project, mm-hmm. this circumstance. So I wound up here at NAS, and me and two other guys wrote a book mm-hmm. that came out of it with a big model about the implications of the Clean Water Act and all these other things. But if I hadn't gone to Yugoslavia, I would never have found myself at the National Academy of Sciences. Yeah. And if I hadn't gone to Yugoslavia, I would have never found myself among some of the world's brightest minds mm-hmm. in economics at Resources for the Future yeah. at the time. It's all a circumstance. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting now, I think, as you've mentioned many times, to look back with hindsight and, and see that progression and see that flow and just some of the coincidence that surrounded those different joining so. points. I was just still astonished that they accepted me. Was there some imposter syndrome early on that you felt? Uh, I felt that, but not then. But not I then. I felt that with other things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the book I'm working on, I feel that a little bit, mm-hmm. but then when I think about it, I go, uh, no, I'm, I'm the real deal. Yeah. But you know, what's up, but, but it does enter your mind. Yeah. But when I look back, you know, like, uh, I tried to explain why is it that they even thought he had anything valuable to say? Mm-hmm. And I think there were, there were, there, there were two reasons. One, people were kind of interested about the Yugoslavia experience. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like an interesting thing. But it wasn't scientifically a credit. Yeah. You know. Sociologically, I think it's, yeah. It was a social thing, you know, interesting how you could do this. But because I had been in National Academy of Sciences, I had to check in the box of legitimacy. Mm. If I hadn't gone to the National Academy of Sciences, yeah, and could check that box, 
uh, the work I had done before that would not have meant that much. Mm -hmm. But all that was circumstance. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't aware of much of, I look back, I don't think I was aware of a lot. Mm -hmm. I was just doing the work. Right. I just keep head do, down, do the work and something good will happen if I do the work, do the work well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of an introspective thing that uh, it's a good way to be. Mm -hmm. I worried about tomorrow and not 10 years from now. Right. I never tried to climb the ladder ever. One brick at a time. But it just happened that I did. Mm -hmm. well, one of the things that always accompanies your description is your time with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. 37 years worth. That's a long time. Yep. And looking at your National Academy of Sciences moving now into this next phase, paint the picture for us there. How, how does that evolve? So after, after I had completed the work at, at NAS mm -hmm. and the book was published, which was the first computer-generated book I ever worked on. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. It was mainframe. Do you remember your uh, system that you were using, your computing system? Well, it wasn't an IBM 360. It wasn't an IBM 360. It was, but it was an IBM system. It's bigger than a, than a 360. Mm -hmm. But it was large reams of computer printouts. That was the book. Mm -hmm. It was horrible. To, but, you know, <laughs> I, I had never done a book like that before. Right. Previous books I did were, well, individual, computer book. It was ugly, too. Because it was really ugly, I thought. Yeah. Um, so after, now I had done this thing, which was made some headlines, you know, mm -hmm. National Academy of Science, big project to evaluate the Clean Water Act and a National Commission on Water Quality. I got to speak to people on the Hill, mm -hmm. want to pick your brain. All of a sudden you're smart, you know. S subject smart is, happens and goes that fast. And, uh, so uh, resources for the future, where my colleague Blair was at, said, why don't you, I was looking, for, I was looking what I was going to do now, and I, I had a couple decent jobs, you know, mm -hmm. that I could go to. Uh, there were in, environmental engineering jobs in big companies, mm -hmm. and uh, he said, nah, why, don't you, why don't you come over here? You know, help us think about this and that. So I did, and I went to resources for the future, where I, I met some fantastic individuals who mm -hmm. kind of let me be one-on-one -on -one with them about ideas and things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote one big book there. It's called Analyzing Natural Systems mm -hmm. that, and how you do that in management things. And uh, Hopkins published it. It was a textbook for a while, a couple of universities. It's about... Water quality models, air quality models. This was part of their curriculum for yeah. a, a certain period of time. Well, these engineering schools were mm -hmm. trying to now convert civil engineers to environmental engineers. Right. And this was the magnus opus on all the modeling available yeah. in the United States. Right. So it was, it was a big piece of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote some other things, but at RFF, you were always thought to be the expert. So you weren't doing stuff, but you were writing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was writing a lot of stuff about telling people how to do stuff. Right. And that's not what I like. I like to do stuff. So I really yearned for that kind of experience I had in Yugoslavia where I could be 
the boots on the ground guy mm-hmm. dealing with the samples and this and that and all the things you do to construct a successful outcome. It's a tangible Rather than telling people, yeah. oh, you got to think about this, right. do it this way, watch out for this pitfall, useful stuff. Mm-hmm. But I decided I kind of not feeling that fulfilled. It's yeah. like I felt with the F-14. Right. It's terrific, good stuff, but I, it wasn't enough. Right. I didn't, I felt too ivory tower, you know, and, and from my background, that was a chip, you know, people I worked for, I, yeah, I got my PhD at Princeton and, you know, I, I went to Oberlin or I went to Yale, yeah. you know, yeah. I didn't go to any of those places. And, you know, honestly, it was my thing to have this stupid chip. I, right. But probably it motivated me to say, oh, wait a second, I don't care if you went to Harvard. Yeah. I could do this as well as you can. I I resonate so with that a lot. It might have motivated yeah. me. Yeah. Going to Missouri, state school, and entering a space like D.C., I think there's a lot of guffaw. Oh, you know, I went here, I went to this Ivy League, so on and so forth. Yeah. And there's always been an approach on my part of, well, that's fantastic for you, but... You know, can you operate within a situation like I can? Are we on the same level there? Can we humanize one another? Can we communicate at the same level? What I concluded, you know, in this was not to stick fingers in anybody's eyes. Just do the work. Get it done. Just do the work. Yeah. So I was getting unhappy, and my other colleague from Stony Brook days had left Stony Brook. Mm Mm-hmm. He had been the director of education of this program. Brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. One of these Wonderkind guys, you know. Uh, and he's, he's five years older than me. He's just turning 80 next month. Mm-hmm. And he had left Stony Brook to come to EPA here and, to evaluate this fantastically expensive thing they were doing mm-hmm. on modeling everything on the freaking planet. Yeah. That was a great idea but totally impractical and unusable for anything. It's called the SEAS project. The SEAS project. Yeah, strategic environmental system something. It's a big thing of the 70s. And, you know, in the 70s, everybody thought we could connect everything together perfectly. We can connect the ecosystem together with animals, with economics, with incentives. And all we got to do is turn the knobs correctly and bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, well, it doesn't work that way. Right. And if it will, by the way. So he was at EPA. Mm-hmm. And we kept in contact. And actually, I write about him in that book because mm-hmm. we kept in contact. And uh, he goes, why don't you come here? He says, I've just come to this agency. It's called NOAA. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you spell that? Oh, it's N-O what? <laughs> and he goes, it's a brand new agency. Mm-hmm. Uh I think we could do some great work here. And he had written a paper on ocean management. Mm -hmm. And they had, the the politicos had become enthralled by this and asked him to come over to this new NOAA. Was this largely on biodiversity or pollution or just anything and everything? Ocean management. Ocean. Ocean management until most recently means how do you manage it all? Mm-hmm. And how do you manage marine transportation, oil and gas, mm-hmm. coastal needs, really circumstances, all these things mm-hmm. into a framework where you could effectively sort of attempt to, quote, manage. Mm-hmm. 
which was which was part of the systems that we had been creating, and I had gone to Yugoslavia for, and I had done at NAS and all mm. this stuff. So uh, I said, I hate the government because <laughs> because I did. Yeah, I mean, these government fools. I would see these GS-15s who didn't know anything. Yeah. It was very high grade in civil service at the time. And uh, he, he said, no, he said, I, look, they, and honestly, he said, they don't know anything about these subjects. Mm-hmm. We really have an opportunity here to do some of the things that we were trying to do and think about and, and probably make a difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, only, only for three years. I'll come only for three years, <laughs> is what I said. And uh, it was different in those days, of course. Uh, there weren't any environmental engineers in NOAA. Mm-hmm. Not officially. When NOAA had been made of these pieces, there were engineers in various things that had come into the new organization. But, but they were called physical scientists. Mm-hmm. And they were more civil engineers or electrical engineers or something like that. Not a lot of them mm-hmm. in NOAA. But no environmental engineers. Right. So they didn't even have a position description. Yeah. So they had to get one from EPA, and they could use that. But in order to come in as a, as a, a, those days a GS-13, you had to walk on water. You had to walk on water. You had to have a publication list. Incredible. You had to be a nationally recognized expert. Yeah, they have all these things that I could like futz, you know? Right. Because I'd written some stuff. I had, you know, had, had some credentials. Mm-hmm. You don't need any of that shit today. <laughs> but so I went there for maybe three years it was mm-hmm. going to be. Well, you know, 37 years later, I retired. And Tag on a zero out, and some. Turns out that but had been right. Yeah. You could make an impact. Mm-hmm. And we did. Mm-hmm. Was it as big as we would like to have made? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. But there's no way you could make the impacts we made if you weren't on the inside. Right. So you had to figure out and, and resolve in yourself what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. So it was, you had to have your own, we had to have our own barometer that we would utilize in all the things we would construct. Mm-hmm. And we, we ascertained that if in government, you could withstand the bureaucracy. It is brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have access to things nobody on earth has access to. Information, technology, mm-hmm. science, money, and the power of the law. Mm-hmm. So if you could withstand the craziness of all of that, you could construct things impossible to do on the outside and make right. a difference. Right. And one thing led to another and uh, ultimately it wound up, uh, you know, with, with the National Marine, Sci- uh, Marine Sanctuary mm-hmm. system of the United States that I ran at the end of my career. Yeah. But that was after I was already there for over 20 years. Long time. Yeah. So we were able to do so much because we decided to. Mm-hmm. Took the initial we action. Decided to. Yeah. And we would always have that plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. And, and you make enemies doing that because, you know, the bureaucracy is a certain beast. Mm-hmm. And there are certain people in that beast who want to do things that only a certain way. Mm-hmm. 
And then the entire political construct becomes a ballet. You have to understand how it works. Mm -hmm. Who do you report to? Right. Is it a congressman? Is it a congressional staff? Is it Senate? Is it House? Oh, is it OMB? Oh, is it the White House? Oh, is it Department of Commerce? Right. Oh, or it, is it those powerful lobbyists and groups that influence everything? Mm -hmm. How does all of that work in a manner where you could guide a course forward to a positive social end for Americans? How could you do that? Mm -hmm. You can do it. But it is a very difficult thing yeah. to do. Just and hearing it from the outside, I feel as though that would be, you it, know... It's a persistence. Yeah. It's a consistent required. element to it. And uh, so when people say, well, how'd you figure that out? You know, how'd you figure that out? And, and it is the same for so many of the things that I, I think I have done is I got from my father this results-oriented attitude about things. Mm -hmm. You didn't do things that you weren't meaningfully going to get a result of some kind. Right. So if you're result-oriented, it drives you to be very creative. Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting where you're going doing this, you don't just keep doing it, you change. Right. If you want to make success in this bouillabaisse of institutional stuff, you got to learn how to play that game mm -hmm. if you want to get a result. Right. And sometimes you don't play fair mm -hmm. because it's not fair. Right. And you have you, to beat them at their own game. Well, in some instances. In some, some cases, that's true. Or just influence something to go a certain way, mm -hmm. make certain sort of tacit agreements with people, with elected officials, with people in NGOs or even in industry. Mm -hmm. Find a way. Find a way. If you can't go through it, go over it, go around it, go under it, find a way. Mm -hmm. If you can't do it, who are you going to enlist to do it? Right. So it's this attitude about there's always a way to achieve a goal. That comes from my dad. Mm -hmm. And the practice of that in Yugoslavia creates the foundation for all the things I wound up doing. Yeah. I'm, o I'm only a Samoan chief because of Yugoslavia. If I don't learn in Yugoslavia and become part of who they are, mm -hmm. it will never occur to me, or I will never act in a manner in Samoa for 16 years to become a Samoan chief. Mm -hmm. It just would never happen. I'd just be another one of those bureaucrats. You know, I've seen a hundred of them walk down the hall. I'm going to fix you. You know, right. I'm here to help you. Next, <laughs> another one comes down the hall. Yeah, and the only thing that remains the same is. Them. Mm -hmm. They're the unchanging factor there. They're there. Yeah. Not the people who are there to help them. Mm -hmm. And so all the lessons I learned, you know, in that experience, letting myself be exposed to that, I think, is it. Let yourself be exposed to the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Let yourself be exposed to the uncertain. And that will grow you in a way, at the time, you may not even be aware of. Right, right. But I tell you, every step of the way for the next almost 50 years, those lessons... I've been with me every day mm -hmm. in so many ways. Yeah. And that's powerful. And that's, that's powerful. I think, uh, if you don't have the, if, but you don't, if you don't have that experience, how does that occur? Yeah. So the, the, the one that Jimmy, my friend that I told you about, uh, with the cane hat mm -hmm. and 
in, in Yugoslavia, we, uh, we are going to do this big study of solid waste. It's all part of this integrated environmental management. It's air, it's land, it's water, it's solid. It's all this, this stuff, which today is like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. No. This is old school from a long time ago. This is right. not new, new theories. And uh, so we, just, we were going to collect garbage mm-hmm. from around the entire city. And we were going to do it in a way that we could create information about types of buildings, types of enterprises, so we could figure out what their generation would be over time. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we had to get the, the Solid Waste Collection Agency to help us. Mm-hmm. Terrible name. Their name was Snaga. A horrible <laughs> name. Snaga. Snaga. Sounds like garbage, right? It does. So we, we long story short, we, uh, we did all of that with all these crazy things to get their trucks, their, their people, not to drink at 6 a.m. and all these things. But at the end of it all, we had to go through and do a composition analysis mm-hmm. of the refuse of the city. Oh, my gosh. So what we would do is we had our students with, on the trucks with the drivers, and after they went to collect places that, mm-hmm. that were part of our design – they would drop it in the garbage dump. So by the end of all of that, there's a mountain bigger than this whole room mm-hmm. of garbage. Mm-hmm. But now we had to go into it and figure out organics, mm-hmm. plastics, solids, metals, mm-hmm. so you could do the analysis. Right. Guess what? As soon as we decided to do that, nobody at the Institute wants to speak to us. They're afraid we're going to try and ask them to do something. Mm. No one will. Our students refuse to do this. Oh. Because they are part of the intelligentsia. It's beneath them. Right. Why would they? This is beneath them. This is not, why would I do this? Mm -hmm. So we go a a couple of rounds on this and uh, this this carries me the rest of my life, this lesson. I, I finally said, I don't give a shit. I'm doing it. Let's get it done. If I can do it myself, I'm doing this. And Jimmy says, me too. And, and then he says, if any, if any of you blah, 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 want a job, <laughs> you better show up. Yeah. Now, they all don't show up. But the solid waste agency gave us what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we had these 25-liter tins and these weights and measures and mm-hmm. stuff. And they gave us the workforce. Mm-hmm. Night street sweepers from Bosnia and Serbia. Yeah. People at the end of their life tether. These are the people you, if you would see, they'd be homeless, you'd call them today, but worse. You could see the map you rip on their faces. Mm. Night street sweepers. They were the lowest of the low of the low mm-hmm. in, the, in the culture. And they were aliens. They were Serbians and Bosnians in Slovenia. Mm-hmm. So they were dirt. So the engineer, he says, uh, you got to watch them. They're probably going to disappear. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, you know. Uh, maybe you should try and feed them. Maybe that'll keep them there. Mm-hmm. So we, get, we have to get dressed up in all of the... Uh, the garbage stuff. Got to be in like a hazmat almost for something well, like that. Well, right? they didn't have hazmat suits. These are these blue coveralls of the peon workers uh, that are just 
That's what we wear, right? Yeah. So we were in the, in the dump, and we get our four guys, five guys, and uh, at first, they don't even look at us. They just don't look up ever. And uh, we buy some food. I can't be, don't buy any alcohol. They'll go crazy. Right. <laughs> don't, don't buy any alcohol. And uh, some mineral water and meat and bread and cheese. Mm-hmm. They kind of moat, sit there on the ground, and maybe they eat a little bread and a little cheese. We don't eat any meat. I know a couple of them are were Muslim, I, I believe. I don't know what that, why they didn't eat the meat. Mm-hmm. So we enlist them into what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just decide we're going to do what they do. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're in the dump with them. You know, sitting in the <laughs> dump yeah. side by side. Right. And trying to think, put things in piles, and then they have to go through these lines to get weighed and mm-hmm. stuff. So they look at us, you know, and then and they sit in there like curious, like, you know, we, we're told you're Americans. So, yeah, 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 Americans, what are you doing here? Well, same thing you're doing here. Right. So long story short of that is they become friendly to us. Right. Really friendly to us. Right. And uh, word gets out that Americans are in the garbage dump at the edge of the city. You got a PR dilemma on your hands. I don't know. But all of a sudden we're there maybe the fourth or fifth day in. And now our, our working guys, they're like working like, Maniacs mm-hmm. Got, who wouldn't even move are now active and, and part of the team and pushing each other. And now the students who wouldn't even speak to them, they're involved as well, but they'll only wear the blue suits if they're in the garbage. Right. Because they don't want the look of it. Right. And they, and they always keep on their street shoes. Yeah. <laughs> because they're students. Didn't want the judgment of having that and, attire and all, on. Maybe. And all of a sudden, these cars come barreling into the mm-hmm. into the uh, dump, and uh, there are two cars, and out of them pop a TV film crew mm-hmm. and a reporter. They've heard about this. Time to document it. And they want <laughs> to do a story mm-hmm. for the evening news. So... Our street sweepers turn off, and and they can't even see the street sweepers. Mm-hmm. They look at them and only see is garbage. And uh, now our students, they're like, "Hey, this ain't so bad after all." Now they want to talk about the right. science experiment that they're doing. So they go through this little thing, and for like uh, you know, ninety seconds on the news, we're famous. Mm-hmm. There are Americans in the dump, and then. So uh, it was super successful. When we finished with these kids, with these men, we what do you give them? Mm-hmm. So we bought a big bottle of cognac. It's called vignac. It's a local type vignac. of cognac, mm-hmm. vignac. And uh, uh, give it to them. Oh, got to open it. Um, got to pass it around. It's ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> It's about to be a fun day. And it is that part of the world, and once you open the bottle... You don't put the cork back in yeah, until it's gone. you got to finish it. Yeah. So all it was me, Jimmy, and our 
one of our students and these guys get a little bit blottoed. Mm -hmm. And these guys were fantastic. Mm -hmm. They would not let us leave the dump until they washed our cars. Because men of our stature have to have clean cars. And these guys washed our cars. Yeah. I have some great photographs of them in the book on this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had done this. Yeah. You know, we had shared this moment. A deep sense of camaraderie there. It was a camaraderie and a work ethic that had motivated us. Mm -hmm. And I would see them later on at, at night. Mm -hmm. I would always stop. And it would be like, we're back in the dump. Mm -hmm. And it was this thing that you would not expect that you would ever have this relationship. Right. But it was this commonality of purpose, mm -hmm. sharing, mm -hmm. and giving a sense of not superiority, but equality. Exactly. Whenever the engineers would come from the waste collection, they would stop work. Mm -hmm. And then this is laying in the, in the garbage mm -hmm. because they were the enemy. Mm -hmm. because of the attitudes between who they were, yeah. where they're from, and them. And these men had lives right. outside of the garbage dump and outside of street sweeping. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd have them on my team any day. Yeah. Well, that's a powerful story. It's I a, think It's a true story, too. And the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in my work experiences, the people who have been willing to get dirty and get the job done, I would prioritize their partnership almost 10 times over any other partnership. I, I go back, and this is by no means a, a global adventure, but moving into D.C., I was stuck in a scenario where I was cleaning, cleaning swimming pools. I remember that. I, I may have shared this with you, and it was dirty, it was disgusting, nasty work. And I'm sitting there trying to make ends meet with rent, feeling like, you know, I've got college degrees, there's no reason why I should be down here doing these kind of things. But... I appreciated the hard work and there was a sense of camaraderie with the guys who I was performing those tasks with that built an intense level of trust with them. So much so that when supervisors were there, there was definitely a distance between ourselves and them. But it was the folks I was working with most closely in that sort of visceral atmosphere where I said, this is, um, this is somebody that I you know, would go to battle with or you know it's trust the, it's the honor of work yes there's honor in that mm -hmm. there's almost a sanctity in humans when it comes comes to work yes sir and and working together mm -hmm. it, it'll happen mm -hmm. and i use those lessons that i learned back in that garbage dump for the rest of my life yep in samoa in every place around the world mm -hmm. australia and papua new guinea mm -hmm. wherever it was those yeah. lessons always were working on me in the back of my mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I could go into a situation which people would not dare go into, mm -hmm. like in Papua New Guinea, for example. Right. And I could feel them and they could feel me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost an unspoken thing. It is. But because my mind was in a certain place and there was a, something that I had picked up about this honoring and respectful thing, they could sense that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to explain it to them. No I, words needed. Nothing. So it's your body language, it's mm -hmm. the way your, your eyes look, mm -hmm. it's the way you hold your head, yep. and it's your willingness to smile. Yeah. You smile, it's amazing what, what happens. What happens, you're right. Even when a person has a gun on you, smile. And it's, 
it, depending upon the situation, it's either confusing. <laughs> I hope I'm not in that scenario. It's either confusing to them, <laughs> yeah. or it's really not a situation requiring a gun, and it's just like, right. oh, yeah. Right. But smiles go a long way. Thanks for tuning in to the Wealth of Self podcast. The audio-only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and many, many more. Your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated. You can help us out by leaving a rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, or follow the channel, and share your thoughts in the comments section. For additional information on how to support the Wealth of Self, head over to www.wealthofself.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. You mentioned a few more global adventures that I wanted to get into with you because one of the things initially when we first met was your background with scuba diving. It was something I had the privilege of being involved with during my academic time at the University of Missouri. I got to train under Master Scuba Diver, who was phenomenal, learned the you know physics behind how to be a good scuba diver, uh, the importance and the health repercussions if you do not follow some of those rules. But it was a really surreal experience finally getting to go out into an open water scenario and become certified. We went down to Honduras in Roatan. Roatan, yeah. And a beautiful reef there, but such an incredible experience. And one I'd like to have again, I, I just haven't had the opportunity to be around a body of water that would merit getting on a you know wetsuit and going diving. But you had the opportunity to do a number of dives globally as a part of your work. And I was hoping you could share a couple of those adventures as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I taught scuba for 35 years mm -hmm. and I taught everybody, including people in the white house. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I was primarily a shipwreck guy. So I thought about 160 ship shipwrecks around the world. Some of them spectacular, some of them, what we would call a bone heap. But there's a certain discipline to serious diving mm -hmm. that if you're going to get involved in that, it gives you a certain mental discipline. It does. Uh, not just about understanding the science, but it's about your discipline and execution of what you do. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when you hear about people dying, some of them are the very experienced ones because they lose their way mm. because... It's always worked. And they lose the edge sometimes of having this mindset that you need to have to minimize or reduce the risk as much as you can. Mm -hmm. So I would, and so I taught a lot of people, you know, as you know, and uh, on many expeditions that I was on, my, when I was in charge, I would always say this, not on my watch, meaning nothing is going to go wrong on my watch and I'm going to make sure of it. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't like it, that's going to be what we're going to do because right. it's on my watch and I will not allow anybody to die on my watch. Mm -hmm. So you, you not only have to have the understanding, but you've got to have this other disciplinary thing right. that, that understands the risks. And, you know, it all looks easy. 
until it's not easy, mm-hmm. especially when you're deep. Oh, yeah. And I told you some of those stories. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been near death, maybe you haven't figured out what that means. Mm-hmm. But when that occurs, and it's happened a couple of times to me, uh, what does your mind do? Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time that happened to me, I think I told you, inside a, a shipwreck at 120 feet in a shaft, it was total panic. It sets I in fast. Panicked. And I was out of control. I'm stuck. Hmm. And I'm breathing like crazy, and my, I can't figure out, I'm, I'm just nuts. And I had to get control of myself. That event, I think it happened maybe 1991-ish, mm-hmm. uh, and figuring out how to get my mind around that was a big learning thing for me. And it, something that I've used no matter what the circumstance of a need to apply that thinking. Mm-hmm. I had to f- force myself to stop panicking. I had to force myself to stop hyperventilating and get calm. Do you remember how you yeah. executed those steps? That's a vivid memory, I would think. Oh, yeah, I do. I mean... Um, one of the things that drove that was I decided I cannot accept the blame. I can only be blamed if I let myself down. I can only be blamed blamed if I let myself down. Mm-hmm. So I got in that situation super calm. And I decided all I could possibly do to get out of this alive was to follow my training. And if I followed it deliberately and expertly, and I did make it out, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But I would, don't let yourself down was the point. That allowed me to overcome that panic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've panicked since. Because there's this mental thing about if you follow your training and you do everything in your power and it doesn't work out, it's not your fault. Right. And don't think about the end. Think about the next minute. Can you paint the picture for us uh, listeners out there about this specific instance, this shipwreck, the shaft? Yeah, okay. This is a ship off of Guadalcanal in Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is 1990 or 91. Mm-hmm. And uh, dive computers aren't generally available and all these other things. And there's only one dive operation, and there's this crazy guy that's had some neurological issues that's is running this dive operation. Mm-hmm. It's on air only, single tanks, overpressured. And uh, me and my buddy think we're such experienced wreck divers that, you know, and we can handle this stuff. You had 120 feet? I was deeper than that. It was 120 feet when I got stuck. So, you know, it's like if there's a crowd and somebody else going that direction, people go in that direction. So your mind isn't fully on active. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're on the beach. We're just getting our skier organized. This guy's in the water. He's swimming out to the wreck. Well, we haven't done a briefing yet. We haven't done anything, but he's gone. Mm-hmm. So we right away throw our gear on. We... Swim out, we figure, well, we'll, 
we'll go over what we're going to do uh, on the surface. Before we get to him, he does a head first dive and he's gone. And we should have known better, but we didn't. So we just followed him down. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the ship and we just follow him. Mm -hmm. He hasn't said a word or anything. Right. And I'm the tail end, Charlie. There's three of us. And uh, before you know it, we're in the middle of the ship. Everything's pitch black, of course. We don't know where we are. And we're just following along. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, we're in a tight circumstance. And all I could see in front of me with my light were the fins going a little bit up and down of my buddy. Right. And there's all sediment all over the place. My, my belly's on the scraping the deck of something. And there's an overhead that my tank's scraping on. Oh, God. And the walls on either side are just wide enough for me to get through. Mm -hmm. And as I, I'm not thinking about it because I'm just following. And all of a sudden, I get stuck. And I'm stuck. And I see... I can't communicate to anybody. We're in something. Later we concluded we were in a shaft of some kind, an air shaft or a duct, and uh, I'm alone. Oh my and gosh. I look at my pressure gauge. It's 120 feet. That's when I started hyperventilating. And you got the single overpressured 80 cubic foot tank. And you could suck that down pretty quick. So in the dim yellow light and all the sediment, I just had to get control of myself, as I said. And then I got super calm. And I got small. And I just pushed myself forward. And I continued forward, forward, forward. And then I popped out into a big, dark sort of area, totally dark. And I shined my light around, and I shined it across the floor. And I, I guess a bomb had gone through there. Mm -hmm. So a big hole was ripped in the floor, maybe uh, three feet in diameter or so. And I saw a fin tip descending through the hole in the floor. And I went to that hole and followed it down mm -hmm. and caught up. Oh my gosh, my heart's beating just because, I mean, I've never experienced anything like that, but when you do scuba dive and you're down at that depth. And, you, and we didn't have any backups, yeah, we had oh my single gosh. tanks, I mean, it was totally, insanely stupid, insanely stupid, mm -hmm. and we finally get down, meet them, we're in this room, which is supposed to be the, the Japanese officer's toilet, like, I, I want out of here. But we keep going down. Ultimately, after a few little odds and ends, we pop out on the stern mm -hmm. of the ship. Now, I'm down, and my buddy and I, we've been talking, you know, sign language back and forth. He's got about, I don't know, maybe 1,200 pounds. I got about 600. And I look at my depth gauge. It was a beautiful Scuba Pro depth gauge, mm -hmm. and it was a 160-foot depth gauge, and like, God damn it, it's broken. <laughs> and I keep hitting it. I might have been narked. I keep hitting it. And, oh, it's not broken. It's pegged. 
It's past that 160. So we're probably at 175. Oh, my gosh. And now we have to make our way all the way up safely to the surface. Mm -hmm. This was a long, slow thing. And we get our wacko guy, and I'm the lowest on air because of the hyperventilating. Mm -hmm. And we share air back and forth, buddy breathe here and there. And uh, we we share regulators. We don't. Mm. It's not an octopus deal. And, yeah, and doing that, and uh, we finally get out of the. We don't go back to the ship the same way. We go through t- some corridors on the outside, which is just keep the current away, and it's, it's well lit. We get to the uh, shallow area, maybe fifteen twenty feet, and we just sit on the bottom, breathe every molecule of air out of those tanks mm-hmm. let them go to the surface surface yep. swim ashore now I'm not feeling too happy about this and uh, we're not happy I could, could I could have killed him I mean honestly but we don't we've got to get back back to Guadalcanal back to the Aniara and Guadalcanal and we're all the way up the coast, and the, the boys are there, you know, do all the work. Mm-hmm. And I'm just smoldering over this. Yeah. Smoldering. And my my buddy is as freaked out as I am. Larry's as freaked out as I am. And uh, so we go back to his little dinky dive shop there, and his uh, little porch looks right out on Iron Bottom Sound. And... and Barry and I are sitting on the steps, just looking out, like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, honestly. How could we have gotten ourselves in this situation? Yeah. And the, we hear something, and I turn around, and this maniac, he's inside his shop. It's like a big garage, and the front's open. And he has rolled out a live hand grenade with a tie wrap around the spoon. And his eyes are like blood red and he's laughing. It's true. It's a little nitrogen and, and toxicity grenade, or something. grenade rolls out. And every... This is a stupid thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like time to go. And without even a thought, I picked up that grenade and I intentionally with the tie wrap holding the spoon in, bounced it across the deck into his shop, hoping it would blow up and kill him. Mm. It didn't. So somebody upstairs was watching out for us because in that flash of, of temper, of fear, I was prepared to kill him. Mm. And... I threw that in a way in which I thought it would definitely pop off the tie wrap and the spoon release. And it wasn't inert. Mm-hmm. It was a live grenade. Wow. It was old. It wasn't inert. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been taken apart. That's why it was had a tie wrap on it. But that was also a lesson. You could be pushed far farther than you think. Mm-hmm. You may could be pushed. And after that dive and that, horrific experience I was prepared to get revenge I guess yeah and my partner didn't have a problem with it do you think he was suffering from some 
nitrogen toxicity or anything that could have resulted from being submerged longer than necessary or not properly nah, surfacing? Is, no, he's, he was in the business a long time. Yeah. He looked like he had some neurological issues. Yeah. His eyes are always like kind of cross-eyed. A little wild. You know, he, he, but he was the only game in town. Yeah. So that was pretty uh, profound. Mm-hmm. But I always remember my, how I thought my way through calming down. Mm-hmm. So f- every time after that, no matter what the crisis was, I had a touchstone. I could close my eyes and see, and I would never panic again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scuba diving teaches you a lot about yourself. And, you know, we, uh, that book is my, there's 22 chapters in that book if it gets yeah. published. It's got some really good stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff, too. You know, because you got to have fun. Mm-hmm. So it's always what we would call serious fun. Mm-hmm. But you have to know where serious fun ends and the bullshit stops. Right. you got to know where that point is. Mm-hmm. So it might all seem to somebody on the outside that, oh, that's stupid fun. What is it? No, it's purposeful. Right. It relieves stress. It does yeah. all these things. But you got to know where the point is. And you only figure that out by doing it. Mm-hmm. That's. Yeah. Well, you've had such a diversity in your life experiences. And, and now I think you're doing something that is so profound and so powerful. And you're putting your words to use in order to recount some of these things, sharing some of these lessons with people through your writing. You're now on book number four. four. Yeah. So. The publication of these things, what, what sort of inspired you early on to document these? And what have you learned through the process, as we spoke about before we got started, yeah. about the intricacies of actually getting something published and out there for the masses? It's, it's maybe not as simple as some people might at well, first perceive. When I retired mm-hmm. in 2016, mm-hmm. you know, I had written a lot of stuff, built a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, people aren't even aware of where they came from. But, I, you know, the system doesn't work well. Still, we learned, relearned, learned again, same mistakes over and over. So I was going to write something profound. That, you know, if I could write this thing, this is going to make a big difference. Yeah. So I thought about that, and I started a couple of things, and it occurred to me, you can't fix this. No one would want to hear what I have to say anyway. <laughs> and, and there were hundreds if not a thousand people writing similar interpretations of why certain social things don't work well or legislation doesn't or this doesn't or that doesn't Mm -hmm. so i said nah i'm not going to do that i'll just write about something that i know about that i like Mm -hmm. and i thought about that and i said well i think i'll write a short story Mm -hmm. and so the first short story that I wrote was the first chapter in that other book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had concluded in my mind, well, I'll just write random short stories. And I'll just, because then I can write whatever I wanted to write when I wanted to write it. Right. And I just put them all together in some random book. So, but after I wrote the first one, I goes, oh, you, you can't, it can't stand alone. Right, can't write it, just one. It, it kind of stands alone. Yeah. But it's part of a progression of, of a decade of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So then I wrote the next one. And now I, I found my way of how to write books. Mm-hmm. You know, and a book is really a succession of short stories connected is what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. a chapter is a short story. Mm-hmm. So I began by writing one story and then uh, formulating it into a book. Mm-hmm. And then another one and another one. And then I, I get tired of listening to myself when I'm writing. It, you get bored to death with the yourself. Like, sounding oh. chamber. It's just like, oh, that sounds so, ugh, I'm tired of that. So then I write those other short stories mm-hmm. for fun. Mm-hmm. Something that had nothing to do with the mental weight of writing a whole book, but could be, you know, a 15-page funny thing. Mm-hmm. Not at all related to what I was working on. Yeah. And that's kind of what I, what I do now on my, my fourth. But writing them, which I thought was the key, is step one. I learned a couple things. I learned that it's not three iterations, maybe it's five. Every time I look at something I've written and I thought was done, <sighs> something, something, something that right there. Yeah. Every time. Yep. I, I, you know, and I remember when I was writing it, uh, yeah, I didn't think that was that clear. Well, because it's not. Right. You need to go back. So and it touch really it takes up. a lot of time mm-hmm. to hone the language and the expression of what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm more time than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned how to do that now, and I'm much more patient yep. with myself about it, and I got a certain rhythm, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't force it. Right. Now, great writers say they maybe can write seven, ten pages a week in the end. Well, they, may, they, they maybe write them ten times in a week, <laughs> but it's the same stuff. Right, over and over, refining, refining. Yeah. There's a lot of similarity there with video editing or filmmaking where you can watch that and feel great about it when you put down the task for the evening, but you come back a day or two days later and you're just, hmm, uh, not quite. Maybe I need to go back. I I, I think good editing video, terribly hard to do. Yes. Tedious. Extremely. Ah. Threading a needle for hours on end. That's what I've equated it to, essentially. And that's largely why I'm steering more and more clear of doing that from a business model perspective, just because the time investment, just like but, writing, it's immense. But you have all the tools today. Do you imagine when you had to cut these and splice oh them? Oh, my God. And I, I don't even, yeah. I can imagine the I pain. started doing some underwater filming with mm-hmm. old mechanical editing things. Ah. Yeah. Oh. And you had some really good opportunities oh. to work with some filming crews to document a few of these well, I've worked with a lot of adventures. good film crews. And, and telly awards, right? I think you said three. Three telly awards. Three telly awards. Some mm-hmm. of them are underwater films, you know, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But with real, not with me. People who are a lot better than me. Yeah. I mean, I think I could shoot frames and video well and ins and outs and mm-hmm. control things underwater. But that's not really being the yeah. guy. Right. I mean, the, the layman thinks so. But to really be the guy, it takes tremendous. Mm-hmm. IMAX underwater? I cannot. Yeah. There are some underwater cinematographers who... And I know a lot of them. And they work regularly because they are in a very finite group of individuals who have that skill set to execute under pressure. I mean, imagine running an IMAX system underwater, right? That's big. Yeah. It's big. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of strength to move that bad boy around. Mm-hmm. I've never moved that around, but I moved around big, uh, big things, yeah. you know, that were uh, 
not IMAX, mm-hmm. maybe about half the size of the, can- the canister on the water mm-hmm. housing that you use for it. Yeah. I think James Cameron, with his recent release of the Avatar film, A Way of Water, yep. he, is, uh, he was utilizing Sony systems, Sony Venice 2s, uh, which is a you know an 8K digital cinema camera, but there were were a lot of underwater scenes that were were tied into the story making and the story in that in that film. So, talk about some highly technical oh, he's, systems. He's the penultimate. Yeah, I have met him. Have you really? Oh yeah, and I'm uh, wow. had some exchanges with him. Mm-hmm. And I knew his brother better. Mm. His, his brother is extraordinarily bright techo, techno guy. Mm-hmm. He uh, designed and constructed the uh, uh, cameras for the first Titanic that are the ride-through cameras. Mm-hmm. They're like a lipstick cam, but they're, they're in a little cylinder. And they, yeah. So he, he's got a lot of expertise technical accolades yeah when we were doing uh, one of our government missions on the japanese midget sub at pearl harbor Mm -hmm. uh, we had a secret project i told you about that where we had to go into the sub Mm -hmm. through the four inch hole in the conning tower that was made on december 7th Mm -hmm. and he was designing for us Mm -hmm. the camera system really because we were going to have a float fly system Mm -hmm. on on a optical cord that we would drive from our submarine mm. uh three person research submarine it's not too deep but it's uh 459 meters mm. so that would allow us to drive inside through the four inch hole and navigate around the submarine mm-hmm. and evaluate it and look for bodies mm-hmm. that was our agreement with the japanese really we had to determine if there are any remains in that submarine before they would fully give us ownership because mm-hmm. they were very special men. Right. They were the gods of the empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, his brother was always afraid. He hate, they didn't get along well, apparently, either. Mm-hmm. I won't say what, what that was, but they didn't get along. And the younger brother always thought that he was not being appreciated. And he had this sense that he would talk about, about people stealing his inventions. Mm. And he was having some difficult time and he would, six, and he had so much difficult time, he couldn't make the payroll. So I arranged for one of our foundations to float him like $4,000 to make his payroll. Mm -hmm. And then like five weeks before we're going on the mission, he goes nuts and he backs out. He's terrified the government's going to steal his inventions. And we're stuck now. We're going in five weeks. Yeah. And how are we going to get inside that submarine? Right. So I did meet Cameron once, pretty out in Monterey at a, at a festival. Mm-hmm. We were getting along really well until uh, he found out I worked for the government. He hates the government. And to my true, I will always hold these two guys uh, in great re- regard. Uh, so he starts getting into my face at this reception. Mm-hmm. And two very well-known people, one is Mark Shelley, mm-hmm. a, vid- a videographer on the West Coast, and the other is Phil Newton, the, 
designer and builder of the Newt submarine series mm -hmm. are there. And they both, I mean, Phil jumped up, got in his face. And it was just like, it's great. <laughs> but, you know, the camera's so bright, he doesn't think anybody knows anything but him. Right. So he thinks the United States Navy is dumb. He thinks everybody who's done anything just doesn't get it because he's so bright. And he is bright. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But he's got that mentality part of his personality him. that I think uh, is affable guy until a switch goes off. Mm -hmm. And when he found out I was a government official, that didn't go. Didn't he, go over so well like, for him. Like a switch when he's just turned. <laughs> You know, it's like going into the cage and yeah. petting the beast. And all of a sudden, the beast tries to eat you. Right. <laughs> Turns around on you. But he, you know, he, what can you say? He's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Very accomplished. And with that work and that resume, I mean, he's at the, uh, the pinnacle, if you will. Of the, from, from our side the of the world, community. Te techno, marine side, mm -hmm. he's done some pretty good stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, his descent to the Marianas. Mm -hmm. That was a secret project that he was working on for a long time. Several other people were working on similar projects to mm -hmm. do this. Uh, but he did it. Mm -hmm. He made a film, but he, hardly anybody's ever seen that film. Right. He had another film that he made as well. Prior to that, like mm -hmm. five years before that. Yeah. I've seen it. Hardly anybody else has seen that film. Yeah. Because in, in his films of that thing, it, mm -hmm. it's always about him. Right. In his film. Uh. And on the Marianas project, which was a phenomenal piece of engineering and what that took to do and how he ran that, they falsified some of the images on the bottom. Mm. Didn't falsify them. They just put some images in that they needed. Right. And that just, that's a no-no, you know? Yeah, you kind of discredit the body of work by doing yeah. that. It was a shame because it was pretty cool what he did. Mm -hmm. And... Extraordinarily courageous. Mm -hmm. I've been in one man submarines as a pilot myself, mm -hmm. but not at 33,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> a little different depth there. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. but uh, great filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, uh, brilliant guy. He well, could make a bigger difference. He could. Mm -hmm. But, you know, time will tell. Mm -hmm. He has time. I think he's. Uh, he has more work to do still. And hopefully, you know, more of that's outside of the feature film realm. Um, some interesting discoveries on the bottom of this big blue ocean that people have no idea about. Uh, more than we can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's astonishing, you know. Yeah. But we'll see. Well, Dan, as we draw to a close, I think one of the final questions that I'm always asking people is, you know, you're looking in the mirror. Who do you see? Who is Dan Basta now after all these years? What do you have to look forward to still? You've got four books. Maybe that expands over the course of the next number of years. And oh, what are the lessons, you know, that you've been able to take away from these? I've, I've you know, you've intertwined it, it, that throughout. Yeah. But when we're in our rambling conversation, I've yeah. said a few things. I mean, uh, you know, I've hired hundreds of people, mm -hmm. and I would ask them a similar question. And my question would be a little bit off color a little bit. It would say, uh, you've passed from the world and people have come to see you. What do they say about you? Mm. What do you want them to say about you mm -hmm. and your time? What would you like them to say? 
It's a hard question to answer for a lot of people. I, I wouldn't ask a question I didn't ask myself. I would simply be happy if people said he made a difference. That's all I would. I look in the mirror, I would be happy that people recognized that I, that I made a difference. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the, the advice uh, when you look back is life is long. There are many turns in this road. You cannot fathom them all at the moment. But if you keep your eye on the ball and take the high ground always, that's my philosophy for why I did what I did, Mm -hmm. make a difference, contribute to whatever it is that humanity is about. Mm -hmm. However you can, keep your eye on the ball. You will make a difference. And don't be afraid to dare. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody smarter than you. We're all equally smart. Mm-hmm. You know, Leon Panetta says that uh, in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremy, we're all smart. <laughs> when he says she's pretty smart, you know. Yeah, and we're all smart. Old Dark 30. Mm-hmm. I, can see, I can see Leon saying that. He's, uh, he's got the book. Got his own copy. Yeah, I said, because I do know him from, you know, certain things in the past. Yeah. And thank you for the copy. I appreciate that. I've, uh, been, I've been excited to see it. And wh- where can people access this if they want to well, get a copy the, for themselves? It's, uh, it's on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can get it through Amazon. You can get it through Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Or you could get it direct from the publisher. So when you use a title... Simple title that works is Honest Communists. Mm-hmm. It's not the full title. Yeah. Among it does work. Honest Among Communists. Honest Communists. Mm-hmm. It, that works. Yeah. I think uh, at the most it's $19. Mm-hmm. An e-book is about 14 mm-hmm. And for some reason, Amazon's prices vary. I don't, well, I don't know why that is. Um, it's okay read. Mostly a fun read, an up read. Mm-hmm. A lot of funny stuff in that book. Yeah. But I would think all things in the book have lessons. Right. At the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, lessons are best learned when you're not trying to learn them. Yeah. Yeah. And they just come to you. Right. Well, I think you have a story that is hard to capture in one sitting. Really. The, well, the diversity of your experience. It, maybe, it, it would be. <laughs> we <Yes>. do it. <laughs> But, uh, but if that's what we want to do. I'm happy yeah. to do that. You know, I'm, of course. Uh, think about that. I mean, yes. Um, you know, with with the, I think f- I'll continue to write books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to finish this book about the alligator. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people were involved in that, and they will want to see it. Mm-hmm. And that's a Civil War submarine for anyone listening or watching. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, a Civil War submarine. Mm-hmm. First submarine. Of the United States Navy, 1862, mm-hmm. precedes the Holland, which was 1900. And it was a secret weapon. Yeah, not many people know about that. Yeah, no. But, they, you know, after we discovered it existed, mm-hmm. they did. And some people have written some books of, about the uh, creator. Mm-hmm. But no one has written the, the book that I, I am writing, which is the story of the people who were involved. Mm-hmm. So I like to write the backstory, right? You know, of the the man on the street that was involved. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? You know, and a lot of people along the way in these kinds of tales, they're so important. 
and it's a handoff from one to the other, from somebody to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But all along the way, there's somebody there. Right. When somebody falters, somebody steps up. Right. They're the heroes. Mm -hmm. They're the heroes, really, and all the things that they that yeah. they do. And, and their stories are often untold. So, oh, they're never told. Yeah. I call them. I I I don't like to use the word backstory because that means different things. I like to say untold story mm -hmm. or the story behind. Mm -hmm. So the this book about the USS Alligator, I think, is uh, the working title is. Uh, the story to rediscover the U.S. Navy's first submarine. Yeah, that's a great one. To read, this was a story about how did it get rediscovered, mm -hmm. and, and a movie was made of that. Yeah, you know, Discovery made a film, and uh, for you, that was that's interesting chapter there. That some of my film friends, mm -hmm. when I told them I had had this chapter, they would go, well, "What do you mean?" And it, the title of the chapter is Making a Film Changes Everything. Mm. It changed everything yeah. to make a film. A lot more attention on the subject, right? Ton. So some of the research, original research that gets conducted is because you need to have something in the film. Right. The first expedition only occurs because, you know, the producer needs some at-sea shots. Mm-hmm. So the act of making the film changes the course of history mm -hmm. in the pursuit of this and understanding mm -hmm. of this first submarine. Mm -hmm. Without it being made a film, some of that stuff never happens. Right. The, the, con the scale model is made of, of this from the uh, original designer's blueprints, mm -hmm. which we find in Paris hidden in an archive. Really? Great, great detective <laughs> story. But why is a physical model made right. for the film? Because mm -hmm. there's no submarine. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to make a physical model, test it. So it gets tested at the Navy Weapons Center at Quarter Rock. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the film. Right. The film needs footage. <laughs> so the idea of an interesting film and content changes things. Mm -hmm. I, would, I didn't think that was going to be the case, but it did. When do you think... Maybe hard to estimate this, but if you had a deadline for when you would like to see this come to fruition, as far as the completion of your writing, uh, my part of it, uh, it could be April. April, as early as April. Yeah, but I'm gonna have to rewrite it again. You right. Know, uh, but I've been rewriting this as I go along because mm -hmm. I haven't putting it down because of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I go back, I start at the beginning. Yeah, refamiliarize yourself. So refamiliarize with it. When I do it, I, I change some of it. Yeah, but this is a great story of the power of film. Mm -hmm. it, it just raised the ante of what you needed to know, mm -hmm. and it changed the research. Yeah, things. So I, I wrote a whole chapter about mm -hmm. making a film changed everything. Yeah, which is true. Well, I'm very excited to have an opportunity to dig in to Among Honest Communists and, uh, and even explore further with your upcoming work. Um, I appreciate your, your attention to detail with these things, and uh, I hope that in some way, shape, or form, it has the power to influence people out there who are reading these accounts, maybe uh, even motivate them for 
taking a jump and writing their own pieces of material. That's well, I talk about that directly in one of these. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I try in everything that I write for there to be uh, lessons mm -hmm. that are part of the. You'll learn something, right? Other than a ah, good story, you know, they got the butler. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you learn you learn something, some lessons that are sort of central things mm -hmm. from any of the things that I write. I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the next one out, though, I think will be American Samoa. It's just about through, it's, it's through editing, it's through a rewrite, mm -hmm. and it's at a proofreader right now. It's a small book, 180 pages. Yeah. Easy to read. Yeah. Well, you're powering through them. I mean, this was just released. When was the final release date? Mm, I don't know, six months ago? Yeah. Four so months ago? You're on pace for one a year. Uh, yeah, the problem is, as I said, <laughs> getting through the publishers. Yes, right. Uh, headache in and of itself. That's a backstory. I gotta write about that. Yes. Well, Dan, I um, it's fun. I appreciate you coming in again and, and speaking with me. This is our second opportunity to do a recording in this fashion, but um, maybe we could do something on one of these books. Yeah, we should. I think that would be great. Yeah, and I think that also provides you know a potential opportunity for there to be again a little backstory, a little bit of marketing that. You can distribute yeah. more easily. As you said, this email chain and talking to consulates and so on and so forth can be an arduous process. But to have a link to say, here you go. What do you, you think? You know, in the, uh, in the South Pacific book, it, it starts out about us and shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. But it winds up after a decade, we learn certain things about ourselves and the world we never intended. Mm -hmm. And in the last expedition from the Philippines we learn about the third world and sustainability yeah, and things that just don't make sense right. that we're observing. Mm -hmm. And then we learn about, and I tell the story of, there's a chapter, it's called, it's about the Chinese and dead reefs. Mm -hmm. And we learn about and experience this Chinese scheme mm -hmm. that is cyanide fishing and killing all the reefs in this entire region. Mm -hmm. And we do a little bit of detective work to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So it starts out as diving, but 10 years later, right. we're involved following a truck yeah. to its rendezvous with an airplane to take illegal fish, stunned with cyanide, to China and Taipei. Didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah, right. But it's in, it's in a book which you think is about diving in World War II. And there's a lot of World War II, but you can't be going through these islands and not just see stuff. Right. Oh, what's that about? Yeah. And next thing you know, it's... It's an entire story ready to unfold. A different story. Yeah. yeah. A different story. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And I, I try to get people back here to pay attention to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. All the NGOs that are saving the world. Don't even have a clue, do they? Well, you know, I began to think about why this, and I know these people, you know, mm -hmm. ran the whole program in sanctuaries, and uh, I, after I, I wrote it, I started to think better about them, and I rewrote some stuff in that they didn't have a choice. Yeah. If they would have taken exception, they'd be out of the country in two minutes. Right. Maybe they were doing a little good, 
but they would have never been able to do any good right. if they revealed a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So maybe they weighed the, the equation and mm-hmm. decided better to, to still be in the Philippines and do something than to not be in the Philippines and everything go to hell. Yeah, do nothing at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate and, it. You uh, appreciate it. <laughs> hey, circle of appreciation here. Yeah, that's it. Well, thanks, Dan. Okay. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Wealth of Self podcast. The audio-only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and many, many more. Your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated. You can help us out by leaving a rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, or follow the channel and share your thoughts in the comment section. For additional information on how to support the Wealth of Self, head over to www.wealthofself.com. Thank you so much for your viewership. We'll see you on the next one.